You don't need special gadgets to be a hero. With unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere, the Capital One Quicksilver card makes you the hero of every purchase. Whether it's headphones, a lounge chair, or even a well-deserved massage, whatever the Quicksilver purchase, you're the hero. No fighting bad guys, getting in epic car chases, or parachuting out of buildings required. Simple, isn't it? The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and here's Jerry, too. And this is stuff you should know. You know it's true. Mm-hmm. Girl. Mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I love that you had this idea to do one on the Millie Vanilli story. Sure. Uh, I love that we're doing it. Yeah. And I was surprised about how much the U.S. Army played in the story of Millie Vanilli. Yeah. Technically, you could say that the U.S. Army produced Milli Vanilli initially. Yeah, we'll point it out. Early on, there were just quite a few references. I was like, there's the Army again. Yeah, for sure. And even still today, what, uh, this is a full three decades later. Um, Milli Vanilli is still generally looked down upon as frauds and a sham and just a joke. But when you, it's one of those stories, just like everything else, when you really dig into it, it's way more complex, way more complicated. And even when it's apparent and clear that you've got, okay, here's the villain. Mm-hmm. If you read interviews with the villain at the time, you're like, oh, you kind of make some great points here, too. It's, it's right. just complicated. But one thing that I hope you guys get out of this is that Rob and Fab were kids at the time, yeah. were in over their head, Early and 20s. were certainly not. Uh, responsible for orchestrating the fraud that was perpetrated through Milli Vanilli. No, they they did as they were told, and uh, like you said, they were in their early twenties. I have a lot of uh, I got a lot of sympathy for these guys. For sure, I do too, and I have even more now. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, you mentioned the uh, what would you call him a villain or the orchestrator? Would what I call them use? both technically? All right. Well, we're talking about a man named Frank Farian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born as Frank's, uh, I'm sorry, Franz Ruther uh, in 1941, grew up in Germany, big fan of music, big fan of soul music, American soul music. Yes. And was a singer himself, uh, apparently a pretty decent singer, and um, sang in uh, clubs where United States Army soldiers would go. Yeah, and he sang what you'd call today blue-eyed soul, but... This was before Blue-Eyed Soul was acceptable, at least in Germany. So he wanted to sing, like, the, the songs of his his heroes, but they were like, "You're no, you shouldn't be doing that. Stop doing that. Mm-hmm. So he was thwarted as an actual artist from the get-go, uh, and he moved into producing in the early 70s. And he there's a quote from him in the, in the early 90s in the midst of all this, and he said, you know, the 
I know and other people are figuring out that the producer is now the most important person in mm. the band, not the artists. Yeah. And if that didn't reflect the future, then I don't know what does. Yeah. But he became a producer, and he became a pretty successful producer almost out of the gate. Yeah, um, in Europe. And then eventually, obviously, thanks to Millie Vanilli, worldwide. But mm-hmm. in Europe, he was super successful um, with a group called Boney M, mm-hmm. uh, B-O-N-E-Y, capital M. Uh, I don't know if they had an exclamation point or uh, Interrobang or something. That would have been kind of cool. <laughs> sure. But Interrobang would have been perfect, actually. Yes. Because you're like, what is a Boney M? But Bonium was a group, uh, disco funk. Uh, Olivia described them as Europop. They were all these things. Yeah. Um, when this album came out, and this is, I mean, pretty obvious that this laid the groundwork for Millie Vanilli because Farian, uh, Frank Farian sang the songs himself and hired four model singers uh, from the Caribbean as the touring band. And between 76 and 85, over a nine-year period, they had eight studio albums and were pretty big in Europe. They weren't the hugest thing ever, but they were big over there, um, not here. But he had laid this groundwork of this model mm-hmm. of him or someone else singing and other people that had a prettier face would be on the cover as the group. Yeah, or touring as the group, too. All of it. And you just wouldn't disclose that. You'd just, you know, not mention that kind of thing. Yeah. And Boney M became popular enough that uh, a guy named Bobby Farrell, who was one of the— um, I think one of the models who was hired became the group's actual lead singer. But he, when he went to go into the studio and record tracks, um, after he left and the album came out, he'd find that his tracks had been re-recorded over with Farian singing. Yeah. So uh, that was just how it was. Farian was in charge, and you just had to go along with it, probably because they signed a not-so-great contract with them. That's right. Uh, now we turn to the, the beginnings of the Millie Vanilli story when mm-hmm. uh, Frank Farian um, stole a song, basically, called Girl, You Know It's True. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written by uh, a group of people. There was a, a Baltimore uh, hip-hop group named New Marks, uh, N-U-M-A-R-X, mm-hmm. uh, collaborated with a, um, a singer from a group called Starpoint named, I guess, Kai or Key uh, Adeyemo. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a man named Bill Petaway Jr., who became a, uh, a really big person in the, in the music business, like worked with Jay-Z and Missy Elliott and all kinds of people, um, but at the time was working at a gas station and got together with them, uh, which included, um, as part of Newmark's, a guy named Kevin Lyles, who is now uh, the CEO of 300 Entertainment, which is a huge uh, rap record label. Yeah, and if you go back and listen to Girl, You Know It's True by Newmarks, you will recognize it immediately. Because not only did Frank Farian steal the song, when he remade it, he remade it really faithfully. He just basically gussied it up a little bit more than Newmarks was capable of. Because again, he was a really talented producer. But he didn't. it wasn't an interpretation or a rearrangement of Girl, You Know It's True. He just redid it exactly how Newmarks had done it, right? So just just to put this in perspective, the fraud that was Millie Vanilli started out with the theft of a song, yeah. their biggest, their second biggest hit, actually. Yeah, and this song, um, he was able to steal it because it was never a big hit. I think it sold about 8,000 records. And in some regions of the U.S., I think Atlanta and Philly and Chicago is what Livia found. Mm-hmm. Got a little bit of airplay, but 
Um, it was not um, a big song in the United States, but very key, uh, Studio Records, who was the indie label that put it out, they also put it out in Europe, and this is where uh, this is where Frank heard it in Germany and was like, I can steal this thing. It's not a problem. Exactly. Only 8,000 records? No problem. Yeah. So I'm not, I didn't see if he ever sought the permission. There's like a legend that supposedly he wanted to go collaborate with New Marks and was either ignored or, or was told no. That's not necessarily true. There's a lot of stuff here that you just have to take with a grain of salt because there yeah. are a lot of different people with a lot of different self-interests mm-hmm. that um, gave their own version of events. So yeah. um, just about everything we say you should probably take with a grain of salt, including that. It's entirely possible from what I've read about Frank Farian that he didn't try to get in touch with them at all. He just decided he was going to take that song. Yeah, and deal Newmark's, with it later. Deal with yeah. the fallout later. They didn't. Newmarks didn't know that that happened until they heard Millie Vanilli singing it on the radio. Can you imagine how mad oh, you would be? Yeah, they got they got paid later and they got credit later uh, because they filed a bunch of lawsuits. But it, it took that to get that credit and money. So uh, when Frank Farian uh, put together his own version of "Girl, You Know It's True," um, Fabrice Morvan and Rob Pilatus or Pilatus. They weren't even around yet. They were not part of the group. They they hadn't even met Frank Farian at that point. They were well-known around the Munich club scene as being like a couple of hot dudes yeah. who knew how to dance. Sure. Um, and I believe that's kind of where Farian caught on to them. Oh, uh, for because sure. We'll see he invited them to come over. But before that, we should talk a little bit about Rob and Fab. Yeah. So Fab, uh, like you said, his name is Fabrice Morvan. Uh, was born uh, on Guadalupe, it's a Caribbean island, raised in Paris. Uh, evidently was a was a pretty promising gymnast until a vertebrae uh, injury uh, from a trampoline accident in 1983. <sighs> I know, it just hurts to think about. I know. Uh, trampolines are so dangerous. They are so dangerous, everybody. If you have a trampoline and you haven't heard our trampoline episode, go <laughs> listen to it and then sell your trampoline. Ruby asked for one. I was like, no way. Sorry. No way. Um, so couldn't uh, participate in gymnastics anymore, turned to dancing. So Rob uh, Pilatus was born in New York City and the son of a German woman and uh, a U.S. soldier. Here we go again, mm-hmm. uh, an African-American U.S. soldier, um, but was uh, ended up in an orphanage in Bavaria and was adopted at the age of four by a German couple. Mm-hmm. And so he and um, Fabrice have something in common. They're uh, they're two black men in the 1970s growing up in these not completely white cultures, but kind of devoid of a lot of black culture, at least mm-hmm. facing racism from classmates and stuff like that. Uh, and they bonded over this. Um, I think it was Rob who talked about finally in his uh, teenage years, um, Michael Jackson became such a big deal that all of us, all of a sudden, like, you know, even where he was in Germany, it became kind of trendy uh, to be black, and he wasn't, like, as picked on, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but super handsome guy, uh, was a model, obviously very early on, and a DJ and a break dancer, mm-hmm. uh, and a good enough break dancer that in 1984, he went to New York for a break dancing competition, which is where he met uh, Fab, who was there for a dance seminar. Very fortuitous. Yeah, even, even more. Like, they didn't meet in New York. Um, Rob decided to fly to L.A., uh, as part of that trip to New York while he was over on the across the pond. And that's where he met Fabrice. Oh, um, right. 
Did yeah. I say New York? Well, he was in New York. They yeah, just yeah. didn't meet in New York. Well, it, so it was a very fortuitous chance meeting. And apparently, you know, they, they got along and everything. And I, I saw that they ran into each other again in Munich. Um, I don't know if they, you know, kept in touch or anything like that. But either way, once they were both back in Munich living in the same town together, they basically said, let's join forces and really knock the socks off of the people at the clubs around here. I'll tell you where they didn't meet. Where? Kansas City. <laughs> it's true. It's like, was it New York or L.A.? Where else could it be? <laughs> if it's not Kansas City, it's true. No. Or, uh, I don't know, what's another place they wouldn't have met? Topeka? Ar- Arlington, Virginia? Topeka? Sure, they could have met in Arlington. It's just outside of D.C. Yeah. Yeah, oh, all right. I mean, it's just right across the river. So what are they doing in D.C.? Um, meeting the president, I would guess. Model Model U.N.? Yeah, they were doing breakdancing <laughs> for Ronald Reagan. All right. Model you. <laughs> that was a fun little improv exercise. Sure. Uh, so, like you said, they uh, met back in Munich. They would eventually get the attention of Frank Farian, uh, who was obviously kind of, I'm sure you like to think he knew everybody in that scene in Germany, mm-hmm. and got in touch with them on New Year's Day 1988, came together very quickly, mm-hmm. um, brought them to uh, his studio in Frankfurt, um, played them, Girl, You Know It's True, they signed a record contract that day where uh, in which Frank Farian said, I will put out at least 10 songs a year by you guys. Uh, and as far as Rob and Fab were concerned, and I totally believe him, they thought that meant we are going to sing these songs, mm-hmm. um, even though they weren't great singers. They also later said that they didn't read the contract. And the fact that they met and signed a contract on New Year's Day in 1988 certainly supports that. At the very least, they didn't bring any legal counsel in to look at it. Yeah. So um, they just trusted Frank Farian. They had been looking for singing parts, so they just assumed that that's what he was saying. We're going to make records with you guys. That is not what had happened. And by this time, Farian already knew he didn't want Rob or Fab to sing. It wasn't like he had them over, heard them sing, and was like, I've got to figure something else out. Yeah. He was like, I love your look, and you guys are going to be the uh, the lip-syncing frontman of Millie Vanilli, and yeah. I'm just not going to tell you that at first. That's right. Uh, what he had really done was, uh, as everybody knows, um, I think probably by now, but he hired professional singers uh, to record Girl, You Know It's True, uh, some gentlemen by the name of Brad Howell and John Davis, uh, former U.S. soldiers yeah. once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, he met them in Germany when Farian was working there. And then another former U.S. soldier, uh, Charles Shaw, is a guy who did the rap por- uh, portion of that song. Yeah, I was puzzled. I'm like, are they talking about – they're not talking about the – they have to be speaking about that one part where he just suddenly goes like, I'm in love with you, girl. You're on my mind. That? Yeah. That's, that's what they're the calling rap? rap? Sure. What, what else is it? Like rhythmic singing? That's what rap is. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Yeah, that, that was the rap part. Okay. Sorry, Charles Shaw. <laughs> you, take, you take issue, I guess. I did, definitely. I definitely did. Even today, like, I'm not looking down on Millie Vanilli. Like, sure. That was not rap. All right. Well, that Blondie it, song was more rap than, than rap, the rapture. rap and girl, you know, it's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, at any rate, those three guys uh, did with it whatever they did on tape. Um, as the real singers slash rappers slash, uh, how did you describe it? Rhythmic talkers? Rhythmic singers. R- rhythmic singers. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the get-go, it wasn't like, hey, we're going to be this new band and we're going to go out on tour. I think Howell 
uh, was in his 40s, and he was like, I'm not going to tour. Um, Farian's was, it was just, Farian's deal from the beginning is I'm going to have these two super handsome model guys in there. You guys are going to sing. And uh, they, I think they ended up listing them as backup singers on the mm-hmm. record, the guys who really sang it. Right. Uh, and that was just, that was the arrangement from the beginning to everybody but Robin Fab. Yes. I'm not sure exactly when they figured out that that was, that they were not going to be singing. Um, I, I, I don't know, because when he played them the song, Girl, You Know It's True, the demo, allegedly it was instrumental at that point. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. So that it wasn't like he was playing this for them and saying, like, you guys are just going to pretend you're doing, you're singing this. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know when they figured it out, but it didn't take very long. Um, and just as like a little side note before we go take a break, um, where did the name Millie Vanilli come from? What does it mean, Chuck? Well, who knows? Uh, there's a bunch of stories. Robin Fab said that uh, it meant positive energy in Turkish, which just isn't true. Mm-hmm. Sounds like something you would say for, you know, when you're trying to sell records or whatever. But also, do, do the words Milli Vanilli sound Turkish in any way, shape, or form? I don't know Turkish, but it, it doesn't sound particularly Turkish to my no, 90 years. it definitely does not. Uh, some people said it was a discotheque in Berlin uh, by that name. Mm-hmm. Some people said um, Frank Farian's assistant, uh, Ingrid Siegeth, uh, was, uh, her nickname was Milli. And then other people said it might have been, and I don't, I'm not sure about this at all, but it might have been inspired by uh, Scritti Politti, the great uh, pop English pop band who is very underrated, I think. Yeah, they sing that song, Perfect Way. I've got a perfect way to make the girls go crazy. <laughs> Scritti Politti is great. It is, and that's a good song, but I just wanted to take this moment because there's so few opportunities to express my opinion of the greatest song of the 80s, the entire 80s, the entire decade. Is Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. Oh, I just heard that song. I can, it's one of those ones that like I'll hear it on the radio or in the mall or something because, you know, there's still malls. And I will never be like, ugh, this song. I can listen to that song every single time it comes on. Yeah. It is so well done. It's so complex, <laughs> but it's so catchy. It's, oh, it's so awesome. well played. It's just uh-huh. the perfect song from the 80s. Yeah. Move yourself. It's a great start. Yeah. Great end, great mm-hmm. middle. Yeah, the whole shebang. I love it. I like that whole album. Uh, what was it? Uh, it was a series of numbers. I wanted to say 90210, but that can't be it. Oh, you 812? No, that <laughs> I can't remember. I liked it, though. They had that great song, uh, Leave It, from that record, too. That's literally the only song I've heard off of that record. That Owner actually might be the only Yes song I've ever heard. Doesn't what? matter. It's still the greatest song of the 80s. You've heard Roundabout, probably. Uh, does it go, Roundabout. Yeah, You've got it. to lose control <laughs> on the roundabout. All right. We're going to take a break, uh, and we'll talk about the deception right after this. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Annabay. Annabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. 
Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, Chuck. So, um, in April of 1988, you said that this all happened very quick. It's, oh, yeah. it's worth pointing out this entire shebang, especially starting from when they they reached the United States till their downfall, was less than two years. Yeah. This was all compressed in just a couple of years, and the whole thing started in April 1988. Um, and after uh, Frank Farian had his his completed recording of "Girl." Um, uh, Rob and Fab started touring Spain and France, so they were they were promoting it. They were singing this, right? So they at the, by this point, Farian had said, "Hey, you guys, just go go out and just you know lip sync to to this one, and then when we do the next album, you guys can actually sing." And that was one of the big reasons that they bought into it. So by this time, by April 1988, they were well aware of what was going on. Yeah, and by the way, dear listener, if you hear a gentle thudding. In the background, I don't know if it's coming through, but 
it's not me banging the desk. There are some construction going on next door, mm-hmm. and I can't uh, control these people. They they basically said, I'm sorry. They have minds of their own. They have minds, and they have a job to do, so they're doing it. But it, it, you may hear like a low-level bump every now and then. So I can't hear anything. All right, so maybe it's not coming through. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to the story. Um, this song was uh, big in Germany, like you said. Did you say that? Yeah, I didn't know. Okay, it was big in Germany, became a number one hit in Germany, and, you know, was like sort of a thing in Europe early on before it got to America. And right out of the bat, right off the bat, out of the gate, in Europe, when this song became a hit, Shaw, the original uh, rapper guy who Josh doesn't think raps, no, basically came out to the, to the media in Europe and was like, by the way, that's me. And then that got uh, shut down really, really quickly. Um, he says it's because he was threatened by Frank Farian. Frank Farian says, no, I paid him like mid, you know, 150 grand to keep his mouth shut. Uh, but at any rate, this is the first time that like the cat was out of the bag a little bit and rumors were kind of going around uh, to the point basically where on a radio station in Europe, they had a DJ that was like, hey, like, you guys, are you really singing this? Um, like, sing on the air to prove that you're really good singers. Right. Um, I saw this described as by the time, you know, it finally came out, a very poorly kept secret in the music industry. Yeah. But that is definitely where it would have started for sure. Um, also, people who met them uh, and were in the music industry were like, these guys did not sing that. They were um, they were talked about as... Um, Hans and Franz, they sounded like Hans and Franz is how one uh, interviewer put it mm-hmm. um, because they have very thick European accents. And apparently um, Rob, no, Fab, uh, his English was so shaky that he just usually didn't talk very much. He'd interject a word here or there, but um, Rob spoke for them most of the time. Yeah, I mean, in their uh, favor, like the way someone sings is not often not the way that they talk. Right. Uh, but it was, it was a fairly thinly veiled scheme. You know, it's sure. like a lot of people early on were like, something's not adding up here when you interview these guys. Right. Exactly. All right. So Rob and Fab are still beating this drum. And this is something that you'll see as a theme through this whole thing. They never, ever stopped asking to sing their own stuff. Very important. Pleading with Frank Varian to let them sing their stuff. They really wanted to do it. I get the sense that they didn't feel great about the arrangement at all uh, and that they wanted to sing. They wanted to, they thought they were good singers and they wanted to sing. They also felt like they were um, trapped in, I think Rob put or Fab put it as a golden prison. Oh yeah. Um, they had golden been given $20,000 advances, fuzzy handcuffs um, <laughs> from Frank Ferry and very yeah. early on. Uh-huh. And these guys like to party. There's no, there's no two ways around that. So these two 25-year-old good-looking hunks who were suddenly kind of, they started out on the club scene, and now they were the most popular dudes at the clubs in Munich. Yeah, with money. 20 grand each, yeah. Yeah. Um, It didn't stick around for very long. So they would have owed that back to um, Frank Farian, and they were like, well, now we're really stuck. Like, we're not only kind of looped into this lie, we're financially, um, like, obligated to this guy. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I think as, and again, like you get a lot of stories from the people involved. Um, uh, Rob said later on that while this was happening in the early days, he got in touch with people from Boney M. Yeah. And they said, by the way, this Frank Farian guy's a rat. 
and he he wouldn't let us sing, and he sang the songs, and it was all a big scam. And so I think early on, uh, Rob sort of saw the writing on the wall. It was like, we're in this deal where we're probably not going to get to sing. Um, but their star was rising uh, in early 1989 is when they hit the United States, when they signed with Arista Records, mm-hmm. a division of BMG, who was um, the president of BMG at the time was Clive Davis, legendary producer. Uh, there's a really good documentary on him, by the way, that I highly recommend. I think he was the, pre- the president of Arista. Oh, I thought he was president of BMG. I don't think so. I got the. I thought he was Arista, but yeah, you might be right. Well, either way, Clive Davis is a legend, um, no matter who he works for. Yeah. And uh, great documentary on him, and they signed them on the strength of Girl, You Know It's True, mm-hmm. released it as a single mm-hmm. at the end of January 1989, uh, and then repackaged the European version of the album for the United States as the album title, Girl, You Know It's True, did some remixes, took some songs off, put some on, and then released the full album. In, uh, and the dates are important here just because yeah. so, of how quickly it was. In mm-hmm. March of 1989. Okay. So they the single's released at the end of January 1989. The album comes out in March of 1989. And I referred earlier to Girl, You Know It's True um, as their, one of their second biggest hits. It only reached number two on the Billboard charts. I say only. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of surprising because that's the one that everybody thinks of with Millie Vanilli. Maybe it's because that was everyone's introduction to it. But it hit number two in April, so the following month. Overall, that album worldwide sold 11 million copies. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to sell 11 million copies of a record. It's astounding. And 7 million of those copies were sold in the United States alone. Yeah, so they had a number two <clears throat> hit in April. They had a number one with Baby Don't Forget My Number in July. Had another number one with Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You in September. <laughs> you mean maybe watch that, that video? That <laughs> was night. good. I watched it too. Yeah. Just like an hour ago. She's like, look, when you watch um, the part where he goes, um, oh, I'll think of it later. But there's, a, there's like a, a refrain that he keeps hitting throughout the video. And he does not lip sync it correctly one time in the whole video. Yeah. Well, Music videos, too, though. A lot of that lip syncing wasn't great, to be fair. True. But this is the point. Uh, yeah. And I guess in hindsight, you, you're you looking for it so you could see it. But yeah. she seemed to have noticed it pretty early on. Right. Uh, and then Blame It on the Rain was their final number one in November. And then All or Nothing was a number four in February of 90. So they had number one hits in, I'm sorry, number two hit in April, then number one hits in July, September, November, and then a number four in February of the next year. Right. it's That's as hot as any band in the history of music. Yes, dude. Five singles released, all five in the top five Billboard charts, three number ones. That's astounding. Like, yeah. I knew Millie Vanilli was big, but when you see it on paper like that, uh-huh. like you said, I mean, like I, there's very few people that have ever matched that kind of thing. And they were just, man, the definition of a flash in the pan. They just came on and blew up and, and blew out in no time at all. Tune in. Turn out, turn out, tune in. What is it? <laughs> Show up, tune out. Smoke it, yeah. <laughs> so they uh, figured that they would be better served and probably a little more protected and have more leverage if they weren't in Germany anymore under the, the literal thumb of Frank Farian. Mm-hmm. So they relocated to Beverly Hills uh, just a few months later uh, in June of that year. They This is my senior year of high school, by the way, just to okay. put that in perspective. All right. I was um, 13 going into – I was this is eighth grade. Okay. 
And by this time, I was listening to The Cure and R.E.M. and The Smiths and NXS and all that stuff. Like, this is when I was, like, starting in, like, 86, 87 mm-hmm. on. I started getting into, like, my little alternative thing. Cool. Um, but I, like, everyone knew this stuff. You couldn't escape it. I was an MTV kid, so sure. I knew all these songs. It wasn't yeah. my thing, but, like, I can sing them all still. The whole world was singing Millie Vanilli at the time. But, 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 baby, are you kidding me? Yeah, exactly. Um, so they sign, and this is a pretty key detail, too, with a very big uh, manager, a music manager named Sandy Gallon of Gallon Mori Associates. And you like remember said, him, right? <laughs> oh, wait, what was that from? That was Dolly Parton's manager who oh, helped her cross right. over. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew that sounded familiar. He managed Millie Vanilli and Dolly Parton. <laughs> well, who else do you need? Yeah, really. All right, so um, 1989, uh, they have blown up. They became part of the first club MTV tour mm-hmm. uh, alongside Was Not Was, Information Society, Tone Loke, and Paula Abdul. That's a good tour. Good tour. But, like, the suspicion that started in Europe followed them here. And like we mentioned with the interviews and their accents and broken English, like, things started to go a little south here as well mm-hmm. to the point where – Like, just a few months after they came here, they stopped doing radio and TV interviews. Yeah, they would only do print. But, ironically, they were allowed to use their voices for an appearance on a Super Mario 3 cartoon where they uh, they play themselves, but they're kidnapped by Bowser's daughter and turned into accountants because they won't perform for her. And if you go watch that clips of that that cartoon, you're like, wow, those guys really did not sound anything like they sounded on the record. (laughs) I saw a... uh a clip i'm sure we both watch like tons of clips but mm-hmm. there was one clip where they were trying to prove they could sing and they did this little acapella harmony bit and it, it they were just flat it was it wasn't like they were completely uh tone deaf or anything and fab actually can sing a little bit i think rob couldn't sing that great uh-huh. but they you know they were quote unquote harmonizing um and sort of were like did you get a load of that but it was super flat it was it was not great but I, I think, like, producers have done more with less with autotune and all that stuff for sure. That is a big thing. That's that's something to kind of, like, put it into context. Like, this is this is a, maybe the world's entree to, the, to what producers exactly did. And it, mm-hmm. in a way, kind of established it as okay to start messing with the, peop- the, the talent's abilities. Yeah. It made it—it it, it was the inflection point where it went from— um, an emphasis on talent and creativity to um, an ability to package an artist and sell them. And a lot of people blame MTV for this happening, and MTV says that's absurd. Right. Um, so we have to talk about what happened in July. Uh, and again, this is, they had th- four of their hits after July of that year. Yeah. Despite the fact that at a concert in Bristol, Connecticut, um, they were lip syncing. Very famously, it skipped um, or it got hung up or whatever on Girl, You Know It's True. Uh, There's a very brief clip on it from a uh, VH1 special, I think, behind the music, Mm -hmm. um, where although Livia says that um, Variety said it wasn't as dramatic as Girl, You Know It's, Girl, You Know It's, (laughs) but that's what it showed in the video. And they they didn't know how to handle it. They if they would have ridden it out, they probably would have been okay because a, a lot of like big dancing performers lip sync and everyone mm-hmm. kind of knows this, mm-hmm. uh, at least parts of their shows. Um, if they if they would have stayed up there, they might have been okay, but yeah. they freaked out and Rob like ran off stage in a panic, basically. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
And uh, it was uh, downtown Julie Brown, who I guess was touring with the Club MTV tour. Oh, yeah. Who talked him into going back out. And I was reading a Variety article written in 2020 about this. And they referred to her as Julie Downtown Brown. And I suspect that article was written by a millennial. (laughs) Yeah, who probably doesn't even know Wubba Wubba Wubba. Julie Downtown Brown. Do you remember that? Yeah, totally. I forgot all about that, and it just popped into my head. Downtown Julie Brown. Yeah, and what's funny is one of the reasons why she went by Downtown Julie Brown is because there was another equally famous Julie Brown on MTV at the same time. Remember her? The redheaded Julie Brown? Sort of. Kind of a weird... I feel like Pee Wee Herman adjacent type character. You're not thinking of Judy Tenuta, are you? No, I'm not. Okay. Look up Julie Brown. All right. Okay. I will. Fine. You want me to right now? Yeah, I'll keep talking if you want to. Yeah, go ahead. Take this next bit. So that was like a big deal, that Bristol, Connecticut show to them. They felt like that that was the beginning of the end. And even still in later interviews, they would point to that as like that was the beginning of the end of Millie Vanilli. They knew that this this act that they've been carrying on was unraveling, basically. And they later said that like they were they were up un, unhappy, nervous, scared, stressed the entire time. And um, they kept partying. A lot of people say that they kept partying because they were so stressed. I don't know if that's true or not. But they, they, it's understandable that they would have been kind of stressed. Uh, by the way, Julie Brown, I totally recognize her now. Sure. And that's who I was thinking of. And I might have said Julie Tenuta. It was Judy Tenuta, the comedian. Yeah, you said Judy, I think. Oh, I did? Okay. I think, so. um, I, think I thought that was Judy Tenuta, but I totally remember Julie Brown now. But she's similar in character. Not quite as like over the top as Judy Tenuta, but similar. Kind of flamboyant, yeah. Y- yeah, for sure. She was great. Um, I wasn't listening to you, though. Where, where were you? <laughs> uh, I was talking about how they were stressed and nervous all the time, and now they felt like this thing was really unraveling and that they called the Bristol, Connecticut show the beginning of the end. Yeah, for sure. So uh, while this is going on, like Millie Vanilli is having all this chart success, but they were never a critical darling. Um, no. <laughs> in fact, they were, uh, and I think people for sure piled on a lot more after The Secret came out. Mm-hmm. But even before that, they became a little bit of a symbol of what serious music critics kind of uh, thought was the the unraveling of pop music and how shallow it was and how, like, overproduced and arranged everything was and kind of the worst version of what pop music ultimately became before it kind of course corrected. Yeah, and a lot of that came from the usual suspects, the rock community who arranged themselves as like the arbiters of what was music and what was not. Yeah. And now that we're at this part, I I really regret talking about whether that was rap or not in the Girl You Know It's True song. (laughs) That's right. Because it's essentially the same thing. But um, yes, Millie Vanilli was an easy target even before they were outed as as, um, frauds, right? Yeah. So I think that made it all the more sweet for the people who were rooting against them to have their wildest dreams come true and Millie Vanilli be outed as frauds. Like, there are people rooting against them. Again, though, like, this is a this is a really complicating factor, Chuck. How much of Millie Vanilli's popularity, then, if the music wasn't that good or, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a music critic, how much of Millie Vanilli's, like, success came from Rob and Fab and the work that they were doing. I mean, they definitely did some work. Um, at the very peak, they did 107 cities in an eight-month tour. 
That's yeah. a lot of work. And also, people loved to, like their look. They thought they were hot. They loved their dances. That that little dance move where they faced one another and just like um, yeah, yeah. kind of ran in place uh-huh. in front of one another. Everyone was doing that. Everyone did that dance move. Whether they were serious or not, everyone was doing that dance move. So how much of their popularity can you, you know, ascribe to Rob and Fab? And I would say quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, 107 shows. Uh, I'm fairly tired from our big three-show swing that we mm. just did. Yeah, by the way, thank you, D.C., Boston, and Toronto for fun times. Yeah, it was great shows. Um, these guys also didn't do themselves a lot of favors. Um, I think in particular, Rob, who was a little bit more vocal just because I think he felt more comfortable speaking English mm-hmm. in front of microphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, looking back, though, like the guy was probably scared and defensive but he would say some kind of dumb stuff sometimes, like in an article, or at least stuff that wouldn't do him any favors. Um, I, I can't remember which magazine, but one I think Time. it was Time. Mm-hmm. There's a quote here where he says, Musically, we're more talented than any Bob Dylan. Musically, we're more talented than Paul McCartney. Mick Jagger, his lines are not clear. He don't know how he should produce a sound. I'm the new modern rock and roll. I'm the new Elvis. So Rob said that that was wildly taken out of context, that he didn't say anything like that. The, the closest, it's a direct quote. <laughs> the clo- right, I know. But the closest that he says he said was that, you know, Elvis was huge in his generation and they're huge in their generation. Um, whether he was misquoted or not, this is a, a potential PR disaster oh, yeah. for this obviously short-lived um, group. So everybody involved, their, the record label, Farian, uh, their managers, all decided that they needed to, to go on a press tour to basically, you know, explain this away. And then somebody else decided that they needed to work a medley of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan into, one of, into their show. Mm-hmm. And they were going to go forward on it. And Rob and Fab were the two that had the sense to be like, that's a terrible idea. We're not going to do that. So they dropped that. But that was how they were going to uh, show that they didn't think they were bigger than the Stones, uh, the Beatles, and Bob Dylan by doing a medley of their songs at their live shows. Great idea. I think so, too. All right. Let's take our second break, and we're going to come back and uh, talk about the rest right after this. spills and stains on your sofa wash away your worries with anabay anabay the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices that's right sofas from only 639 dollars anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly stain-resistant and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees, every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. Oh, 
OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right. So here's the question, which is, and Livia titles this section that, who knew what when? Mm -hmm. Because that's sort of the big question. Mm -hmm. So Rob and Fab, their manager, Sandy Gallen, mm-hmm. um, Clive Davis, and it seems like a lot of people on the inside in the music scene knew this was going on. Um, in the summer of 1989, like while they were putting out these songs and having these big hits, uh, there's a, a guy named Todd Headley who uh, used to work for Millie Vanilli. I believe he ended up being their manager at a certain point mm-hmm. um, afterward when they were just Rob and Fab. But he said... You know, everyone that was connected to this knew this. Uh, I don't know, like, necessarily when, but everybody knew this. Um, as far as Arista goes, they said, well, we didn't know it. Frank Farian, I guess, I bet you there was some handshake deal or something sure. going on. Because yeah. he took, he basically came out very vehemently saying, like, no, Arista didn't know anything about this. Right. Um, but everyone knew, basically, on the inside. Yes, but all of those people publicly said that they did not know. I mean, can you imagine the record company being like, we had no idea these guys didn't sing on the on the tracks. Yeah. But that's what they said. So, um, the, and the whole time, remember, just bear in mind, they kept trying to fight to sing. Like, their yeah. whole sideline was trying to convince Frank Farian to let them sing on the next album, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, finally, I believe that the whole thing came to a head. Um, Oh, yeah, that was evidence. I'm sorry. There was evidence that shows that at least Clive Davis from Arista knew that this was going on because they CC'd him on letters from their lawyers demanding that Frank Farian let them sing on the next album. 
Yeah. So if if, if Clive Davis wasn't like, what do you mean on the next album? Why wouldn't you let him sing if he didn't look into it? That's yeah, his own yeah. bad. The implication is that he wouldn't have looked into it because he knew exactly what that meant. Right. So the whole thing came to a head with the 1990 Grammy ceremony, right? That's right. Uh, they were, you know, obviously going to be a strong contender for Best New Artist. Mm -hmm. uh, as the story goes, Clive Davis did not want to submit them because he knew it was a fraud. Um, but Sandy Gallen and the management company said, nope, we're going to submit them. They won Best, of course, they won Best New Artist at the Grammy. Who else would? And they performed at the ceremony, lip-synced at the ceremony. They owned the Grammys that year. They did. Uh, and the producer of the Grammys was basically later on, it's like, you know, everybody really sings. This is one of the few times in 40 years of doing this that I've let someone lip-sync. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is where things kind of went downhill. Uh, I think the Grammys later said, like, all you had to do was put somewhere on the record, even in the smallest print, like Millie Vanilli is and list the original singers. But like, we can't let you keep these Grammys. So we got to take them back. Right. And they actually fully intended to. Apparently, the day after the, the um, Grammys said, we want our Grammys back, um, Michael Green, the president of it, said, we want our Grammys back, something along those lines. They had already had a press conference schedule where they intended to give them back. They'd, well, not give them back, give them to the singers. Right. Initially, they had wanted to, and apparently the Grammys were like, do not give those to anybody. It's not up to you to give them to anyone. And, and the question is whether or not they were going to give the Grammy to the next runner-up. I can't, Who was that? I can't I remember. I think Tone Loke, Information Society. I can't remember who else. Um, but they didn't. There was no Grammy for Best New Artist given out for 1990 um, because mm. Millie Vanilli's was taken back. What could have been? And at that press conference, they had their voice coach uh, stand up and say, yeah, these guys can sing. I, I totally attest to that. And um, yeah, that was where you, you, you mentioned earlier that they kind of like rapped and sang just these little snippets to show that they could and it wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, but that that was it was a very fateful um, uh, press conference. But if you watch it, they don't seem at all nervous. They seem yeah. like they're soaking in the love still. And I read that that during this time, they expected the music industry to take them back with open arms because they'd done so much to make Millie Vanilli huge. That yeah. just did not happen. All right. So that the Grammy. Uh um, snafu was on November 19th, 1990. Mm -hmm. um, this happened because five days earlier, Frank Farian finally came out because these guys would not stop asking him to sing. And it was not only annoying to Frank Farian, but he was in between a rock and a hard place. It's like, can this thing even go on anymore? So he figured it can't go on. I'm going to hold a press conference. I'm going to expose everything. Uh, he disclosed it all. And he said, you know, still Arista didn't know anything about this. And Arista, they were this this guy, the VP of uh, operations, Roy Lott, had a quote where he was like, seven million albums, embarrassing? Am I embarrassed? Uh, you know, I don't mean the end justified the means, but we sold seven million albums. Right. And I'm like, dude, that's the very definition of the end justifies the means. Exactly. I don't think you know what that means. Yeah. So um, the, there was a very wide ranging impact from this. Like we've kind of talked about, like a lot of people pointed to this and said, see, see, like this isn't about... The, art, the, the actual music or the creativity or the talent anymore. It's about packaging people as artists, so much so that 
they, they didn't even sing on the album. That was the big thing. If mm-hmm. it had come out that they were lip syncing in concerts, they could have pointed to everybody from Janet Jackson to Paula Abdul and said, they lip sync too. You can't really sing well when you're when you're doing these incredible choreographed dances throughout a whole show. So, of course, mm-hmm. they're lip syncing. Um, it wasn't that. It was that they didn't even sing on the album, that they had nothing to do with the music aside from the visuals, that that's what really kind of got everybody. But one of the things that it definitely exposes is that this is not a, a standalone uh, incident. No, and it was well known in the music industry that this happened. Uh, Martha Wall, she was uh, part of the Weather Girls who had the great song, It's Raining Men. She was the one who sang that part on the CNC Music Factory hit. Yeah. Uh, they again, they hired a model slash singer who to sort of pretend like she had done it without her knowledge. Oh yeah, um, the Village People had always been rumored to have not been the actual singers, like that first version of the Village People. Uh, and I tried to find out if that was true, and I really couldn't see anything definite. Um, but a lot of people were doing this kind of thing here and there. Um, lawsuits started to be people. I think were just sort of fed up though, and it was the end of the '80s, and I think people. I think styles were changing and tastes were changing, and they're like, we don't want fake music. Like, we you should start putting like truth on labels. Like, uh, this wasn't recorded by this. Like, truth and music labeling. Mm-hmm. Um, fans filed class act uh, class action lawsuits about Millie Vanilli, and was it was settled by getting up to three dollars from uh, BMG and Arista if you could say like, here's my concert ticket or yep. here's the album that I bought. Yeah. Um, Farian, and you kind of alluded to this early on, and I sort of agree, like, it was a fraud, but he was also like, this is pop music, and like, who cares? In Europe, like, no one cares, it's no big deal. Like, everyone in America got so riled up about this, and like, you know, these guys made a couple of million bucks, I made money, the guys who really sang it ended up making money, like, who cares? Right. Um, And I sort of get that a little bit, because... It, there's a lot more things to be getting a huff about, but I also get it in a way. Yeah, and I think now we do, but we do now because of the rough transition that we went through by being so, so let down by Miller Vanilli. <laughs> I wasn't let down. Liar. So uh, Rob and Fab, again, they were expecting to just basically be welcomed back into the fold pretty quickly, that this was basically just a speed bump. And now, more than anything, they were released from this golden prison they were in. They didn't have to be stressed out about people finding out their secret any longer. And now, finally, they could do their own music. And they actually released an album called Robin Fab, using their real voices. They showed up on the Arsenio Hall show to sing live, which they had turned down before because the Arsenio Hall show required performers to to perform live, no lip syncing. So mm-hmm. now this is kind of like a triumphant appearance on the Arsenio Hall show. Their album sold 2,000 copies in the U.S., and that was it. Yeah, it was a big flop. Um, I did not know until today that they did a cover version on that album of Cheap Tricks, I Want You to Want Me. Oh, I didn't know that either. Listen to it. I definitely will. <laughs> but th- So a lot of people are like, yeah, of course it was a flop. They, they were frauds. I think that one of the reasons... Probably the biggest reason it was a flop is that they released it in 1993. 
1990 and 1993 were mm-hmm. were situated in two totally different worlds. Yes. Because Nevermind had come out in September of 1991, and no yeah. one cared a lick about anything that CNC Music Factory or Black no. Box or Millie Vanilli was putting out. All they wanted was more and more Nirvana and grunge and give it to us. Give us Pearl Jam. Give us all that stuff. That's all we care about. So I think that that at least accounts for a significant reason why it was such a flop. Yeah, bad timing for sure. Uh, and for, I mean, that changed all of music. That's when the metal bands were all like, oh, what are we supposed to do now? Right. Uh, it was a big transition. Um, as far as Robin Fab, uh, if you haven't seen the behind the music, some pretty sad stuff happened afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob uh, had a pretty rough life after that. He had a suicide attempt in 91. Uh, he was in rehab quite a few times. He was arrested a few times. Um, they eventually were going to get back together in 1998 to work on something. But on April 7th of that year, uh, he was found dead in a hotel room, um, and everyone basically agrees that it was an accidental overdose of alcohol and pills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, Fab, you know, was heartbroken and put out a, a pretty apt statement, I think, was uh, Millie Vanilli was not a disgrace. Uh, the only disgrace is how Rob died all alone. Where were the ones that pushed us to the top who made millions? Mm. And it's just that familiar story of sort of getting used and then – Kicked to the curb and forgotten about, yep. you know, chewed up by and spit more out. powerful people. Yep, exactly. So, um, Fab actually, they were both really like into drugs and drinking. Um, and Fab made it out. I read that he paid for um, one of Rob's stints in rehab. That's great. Um, so he made it out. He still sings today. Um, in 2015, he joined up with John Davis, one of the original singers of Millie Vanilli. Mm-hmm. And they toured, I think, as Face Meets Voice. Yeah. So they performed some of Millie Vanilli's songs on tour. Um, and one thing that I am so looking forward to, I can't even stand it, is apparently, finally, at long last, we're going to get a Millie Vanilli biopic. Yeah. Did you see these guys that are playing them? No. Is it dead on? Oh, I'm texting you right now, dude. Better it than is... Ice Cube's son playing Ice Cube? Oh, I didn't know that was happening. No, that was in, uh, uh, what was the NWA biopic? Oh, was he in that? Yeah, he played Ice Cube. That was Ice Cube's kid. Straight out of con. Oh, no, Ice Cube. I thought I thought uh, you said Vanilla Ice. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember his name. The guy, he was in Cocaine Bear, too, the movie you hated that I liked. Uh, I know. Uh, the uh, Vanilla Ice biopic, by the way, is called Cool as Ice. Is that a real thing, too? Yeah, but it's not really a biopic, but it kind of is. Did you see the picture? Do you have your phone? Uh, I do. Sorry. Look at these guys. Uh, two unknowns. I think they spent years trying to find the right people, but uh, wow. it's a guy named Ilan Ben Ali uh-huh. as Fab uh-huh. and a guy named uh, Tijan uh, Niji. I'm not sure how to pronounce That's that. What I That's go with. the best I can do. And they look these guys up. They're in a costume as Millie Vanilli, and it's uncanny how much they look like those guys. It definitely is. It's pretty. Pretty, wow, that's really something. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. So I hope it's going to be good. And supposedly a lot of people who are involved in the actual band like um, or their relatives are associate or executive producers on this movie, too. So it should be pretty authentic. Yeah, I think the icing on top is the executive producer was, the, uh, was that guy who runs 300 Entertainment now, who was the original uh, lyricist for Girl, You Know It's True. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. Isn't that cool? Very cool. 
And if you want to see something really cute, uh, when Yumi and I were doing our Millie Vanilli research on YouTube last night, we ran across um, a channel called Africa React. And it's this super cute girl who listens to songs that she'd never heard for the first time. And it's just reaction videos. But one of the ones she did was Girl, You Know It's True. And she gave an official thumbs up to it. It's really cute. Cool. Yeah, those are fun. You got anything else? Nothing else. All right, everybody. That means it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, I'm going to call this My Husband Fell Asleep at Your Show in Boston. Um, <laughs> hey, guys, got tickets to the Medford show. and was excited to see you folks live for the first time. My husband agreed to join me and met me in Medford after a few days uh, at a work conference in New York. We took our seats, and just as the lights went down and y'all appeared on stage, we laughed at your jokes. We oohed at the topic and settled in to be educated. Much to my surprise, I noticed my husband next to me doing the head bob <laughs> and bouncing, beginning to nod off about 10 minutes in. Wow. He dozed off while I did my best to keep from leaning over onto the guy next to us. Uh, he finally did wake up after the second commercial break uh, and enjoyed the ending. He claims that I've been conditioning him to fall asleep when Stuff You Should Know starts, but I believe it may have been... Uh, the letdown from the excitement of the conference and the work trip. Yeah. Uh, but we both had a great time. Wouldn't hesitate to see you live again someday. And thanks so much for taking the trip up north. Uh, I'm not going to read Maggie's last name because her husband may be embarrassed. So that is just for Maggie in the in the Northeast. Thanks a lot, Maggie. That's hilarious. The idea of your husband um, falling asleep to us normally and then <laughs> having it happen in person too because he's so used I to it. I love it. I love it too. Well, if you want to be like Maggie and get in touch with us, we love it when people do that. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, Sarah. I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you'll have access to 24-7 live customer service as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply.